to see you rightly, to understand our circumstance and our situation in light of who you are. And Lord, we know the result is peace and joy. Lord, repentance and righteousness. Lord, I pray you would grant us these things as we see, uh, we see correctly, we see truth, Lord. So as we open your word, teach us, Lord. Send your spirit to do a work in our lives. We come from different backgrounds, from different situations. Some of us are coming from uh, a weekend of peace and joy. Some of us are coming from a life of difficulty and struggle and everywhere in between. Lord, we ask you to meet us, to help us see you correctly, to see our problems correctly, and help us to wait upon you, Lord, um, to deliver us. So meet us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you guys. If you have a, a kid with you today and they're under sixth grade, there's a class for them in the back if they would like to attend. Uh, if you go through these doors and you don't know where to go, somebody will surely help you out and show you the way. All right, we're going to be in John chapter 8. If you have your Bibles today. It'll be up on the board as well. And uh, this will be a familiar passage, I'm sure, for many of you. Which is always, you know, when you have something that you've heard many times, you know, it's an always, always a challenge to, to teach. And, uh, and to, you know, I don't, I don't need to bring something new. Like, I don't, I don't want to feel like I need to have a new insight or I'm not going to discover like new scholarship and, and uh, bring new revelation to God's Word. God's Word is the revelation, but I do hope to, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of God, as I speak, to, to highlight things that maybe God wants to do in your life. He wants to speak to in your life. Uh, he wants to address. And so um, I'm not coming up here trying to be up here in my own wisdom. I just want God to speak. And so as we look at God's Word, try to hear it with new ears for the first time. You can take your old knowledge and hold on to that. Your, your, uh, you know, the things that God's revealed to you. If you have uh, understanding that maybe is just from tradition or from, uh, that maybe God wants to, He may want to address something new or He may want to shake things up. So we're going to come to God's Word and we're open to Him. We're open to Him leading us and teaching us. I hope that's your, your stance today. So we're in John chapter 8, and um, there's a little bit I can say, I guess, in the background of this, is that uh, if you, depending on the type of Bible you have, this may be in italics. There's probably brackets. There may be some notes in the first 11 verses of John chapter 8 regarding the story of the woman caught in adultery. And there's uh, a ton of research that you can do, a lot of scholarship behind this. And the very earliest manuscripts in Greek don't have this portion, or they don't have this portion in this place. Uh, but early on in the church, from the first century on, there are uh, records and acknowledgments that seem to verify this as an actual episode in the life of Jesus with apostolic verification. Those who were there, apostles, disciples who were there, giving their verification to the validity of this story. And so 
It is included in our Bibles. Uh, there is rigorous scholarship, rigorous debate that goes into or has gone into in the history of how the Bible has been put together. And uh, sometimes critics will use that as a way to uh, maybe to question the validity of the Bible, to put it down to say, you know, there's not agreement or there's, there's manuscripts like from history that... Uh, some have some parts and some don't have other parts. And people have manipulated the process to have the Bible say what it wants to say. And I'll say that's um, a convenient excuse for somebody to not take the Bible seriously. There are people that have put uh, decades and you know, there's centuries of study and debate and prayer and intensity that have gone into this. And it's been scrutinized and it's withheld and it's, it's stood the test of time. And what you have, you can trust and so this passage that we're going to read today um, is, a, is a beautiful passage. I used to be an English teacher. I, I reference that often just so maybe you understand the way I teach or the way I look at it. And um, in these 11 verses, there is a story of incredible depth, incredible richness. I mean, there are books that have sprung out of these few verses to explain, to speculate, to, to wonder, to... To, uh, to think through these, to explain the background that's there. It's incredibly rich. And uh, I was thinking, like, one of, the, one of the great American writers one of the, in American literature uh, is a guy named Ernest Hemingway. He actually won the Nobel Prize in literature, uh, and it had to do mostly with the book, a novella he wrote called The Old Man and the Sea. I don't know if you guys have read that. but And it was, it was so compact. I mean, it's significantly larger than 11 verses, but they... You know, it got all these awards and or accolades and, uh, you know, praise for the skill of a writer because he could say so much and so little. And I think this blows that out of the water. I think this is the Word of God, and it just, it, it blows my mind. It's incredible. So let's, let's dive in, okay? Um, so we're in uh, John chapter 8. Jesus has been teaching. There's been controversy. He's been opposed. He has enemies coming at him. And what we see here is, is a, a setup. We see, uh, we see a trap set for Jesus, right? And it really, it, it picks up in verse 2. It says, I want to read a little bit and then we'll get back to it. It may be up here on the screen. Uh, it says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. And so first of all, just to speak to that, Jesus comes to the temple. Uh, this is the most dangerous place for Jesus to be. Uh, he's coming out into the open. He's fearlessly continuing his mission. The, they're looking for ways to trap him. They're looking for ways to arrest him. They want to do away with him. They want to kill him. And he uh, boldly, boldly walks into the temple. It says all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. And so he's teaching and his teaching is interrupted, Right? And it says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Okay? Uh, verse 5, now in, the law of Moses, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? So right away, there's... This is a, they're setting this, this is the stage is set. Jesus is teaching, this woman is brought to him, and they claim that they caught her in the very 
act of adultery. And uh, what's notable here is what's absent. If she was caught in the act of adultery, she wasn't alone, right? And yet they bring only the woman to Jesus. And they're questioning him about the law. They say, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They are coming under the pretense that they, uh, and their whole life is built around the fact that they highly esteem the law of Moses. Every effort, every, every uh, minute of their life is organized in attempting to display the, that they obey the law of Moses. And you could look at Leviticus 20 and know right away that they're not esteeming the law of Moses because it says, uh, when they're bringing this woman and wanting to know if she should be stoned, it says, uh, if you want to turn there, Leviticus 20. Oh, I didn't even write the verse. Uh, it says, when a man is caught in adultery, they are to be brought, the adulterer and the adulteress. So it uh, emphasizes the guilt and the fault of the man and in the law in Leviticus chapter 20, it says the man and the woman, the adulterer and the adulteress, are to be brought, to be stoned. And the, uh, the level of witness required here, the bar for the, the level of witness is very high. They say that she's caught in the very act, meaning they had observed her committing adultery. That was the level required by multiple witnesses. I don't know that this... This punishment uh, couldn't be based on hearsay. It couldn't be based on uh, circumstantial evidence. They didn't have, uh, maybe they had some rude, uh, rudimentary forensic evidence. It had to be based on multiple witnesses catching them in the very act, right? And they're claiming that they've caught this woman in this act, but they haven't done what's right by bringing both the man and the woman. In fact, they didn't even have, if they had caught the woman, you know, like they could have uh, held her in custody and brought the question to Jesus. They have no regard for this woman. They're attempting to create a scene. They're attempting to create and set the stage for chaos to trap Jesus, to work people up, and to have an excuse to... Uh, to undermine his authority, to undermine his teaching, to undermine his influence, to uh, throw shade on him, if you will. They're trying to find a way that they can accuse him, that they can cut the legs out from underneath his ministry, and they can do away with him forever because he's such a problem to them. In fact, uh, in Deuteronomy 16, it talks about how you're to appoint judges that don't pervert justice. I think uh, perverted justice is a good term to describe what's going on here. Uh, all through the law, it talks about this. In De Deuteronomy 16, 20, it says, Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land the Lord has given you. Justice and only justice. They're not coming to Jesus. It is obvious. They're not coming to Jesus because they're torn apart about how to execute justice in this situation. It's very clear. They're not... Uh, they're not, you know, tearing their hair out to figure out what's the righteous and just thing to do in this situation. They have ulterior motives that are thinly veiled. In Exodus 23, it says, Don't put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous 
witness. There is a plot here that has nothing to do with justice. It has nothing to do with righteousness. They are attempting to accomplish the aims that they have by using other people as a pawn, exploiting them with no regard for their life or their death. In fact, a lot of uh, scholars speculate that they had, they, had, uh, they had knowledge, perhaps, of this affair, and they had this kind of in their back pocket so that they could exploit it for their purposes. You know, how convenient that that moment Jesus is in the temple, that they just happen to catch this woman and are able to bring him to Jesus. The timeline is suspicious. And you know, there are people... Uh, this came to me, and, and I guess I, I kind of wrote out here as, a, as sort of a command, I guess, that maybe this story speaks. Uh, do not keep track of people's sins to call them out and expose them to use it for your own selfish purposes. Do you know that there are people that will do that? There are people, you know, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love keeps no record of wrongs, right? There are people who will keep a record of your wrongs, of your sins. They will keep that in their back pocket as a trump card to play that so they can trap you. A lot of times, people will do that when they themselves have been exposed, when their sins have been pointed out, when their faults have been pointed out. So I'd say be aware of that. But if you are that person, if that is a strategy that you have been trained to use, you are not on the side of Jesus. You're not on the side of Jesus. If you become aware of people's sins, your responsibility as a Christian, your main motive is to be love, to shepherd them, to guide them, to gently lead them to repentance, to pray for them, to ask the help of the Holy Spirit, you know, what's interesting is that they brought her to Jesus, which is the right thing to do if you have knowledge of someone's sin. You bring them to Jesus. You lay them at the feet of Jesus. They didn't get what they were hoping for. They didn't get the result that they wanted. But they, they did the right thing. They got the right result, ironically. They had the wrong motives. I think, to me, it's like, we're more than conquerors, you know, like when you're in Christ Jesus, when the devil intends to destroy you, to kill, steal, and destroy, Jesus turns it around and he gets the glory. He's more than a conqueror. I had another note here. It said, uh, these people, this is for later, but it's, I think it's really good. They gloried in the power to expose and condemn. And we're going to see that Jesus glories in the power to forgive and deliver. Jesus' glory is in the power to forgive and to deliver. And so don't delight in calling people out. Don't delight in exposing people's sins. Don't delight in listing all the things that people have done wrong to you. You're on the wrong side. They use this woman as a pawn. Her life and death is of no consequence. It's secondary or well below, not even secondary, it's well below their agenda, their mission, which is to trap Jesus. And it tells us that uh, in verse 6, they said this, to test him that they might have some charge to bring against them, bring against him. So they brought Jesus 
an either-or proposition, okay? They think that they've trapped him in the sense that either he says that she's to be stoned and he violates Roman law. They're not allowed to execute these religious executions. They're not allowed to hold these out. Or he says not to stone her and he appears to be breaking the law, contradicting Moses, uh, and being soft on sin. They think that they've cornered him. They've backed him in. They think that they've only brought him two options, none of which are good. And they've got him in a trap, and they just, they just have to wait and see which, which side of the trap he decides to walk into. And so uh, I can picture in my mind there's a little bit of a, I imagine, a smugness, you know, an, an arrogance uh, as they present this to Jesus. And they're waiting to see how this is going to play out. They, they have full confidence in their trap. They have full confidence in their scheme. And they think they finally have cornered Jesus. But I want to tell you uh, that our Jesus is not dismayed. When we are facing things that seem like there's no good solution, when you feel like you're trapped in a corner, we see this over and over throughout Scripture. Uh, I've taught about this before years ago, that when it seems like there's only two options, there's a third way with Jesus. Jesus finds a third way. Remember when they asked him about paying taxes to Caesar? And he just said, show, you know, they thought they had him trapped. Show me the coin. Whose inscriptions on, inscriptions on it? Give to Caesar what is Caesar, to, God's, to God what is God's. Jesus sees possibilities where it seems like there are none. Jesus makes a way when it seems like there isn't a way. And when you're in a situation that seems like there's no hope, there's no way out, there's no good solution, there's no way that you're going to escape, there is a way in Jesus. They thought they had Jesus trapped. And it says that he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground in verse 7 and as they continued to ask him so he bent down and he's writing with his finger on the ground and they continued to ask him I, I like that picture that Jesus is really uh, unbothered I don't think that that's right I think he's bothered but I don't think he's uh, scared I don't think he's dismayed I don't think he's bullied into a quick answer. I don't think he's pressured. I don't think he's uh, in danger. I don't think they put him in a dilemma. He's not baffled. He's not confused. He's not worried. He's not scrambling for a word or a solution. And that is the same in your situation. You may be all of those things, but Jesus isn't dismayed. Jesus isn't in danger. Jesus isn't worried. He's not in a dilemma. He's not baffled. He's not confused. He's not worried. He's not scrambling for an answer or a solution. He has your word. He has your solution. And I encourage you to wait upon him. And he will reveal what I call his, you know, his third option, his third way. You may think there's only these options. All of these are my options. None of them are good. All of them are terrible. There's an answer in Jesus. And Scripture tells us over and over to wait upon the Lord. Another thing that Jesus does stood out to me is he stoops to write on the ground. He knows that these people, I mean, they will, they're okay with 
killing, stoning the woman, but they really want to stone or kill Jesus. And I wondered, you know, like you, you can see different visual representations or film and TV shows or whatever. Um, you know, I wonder, do they have the stones with them? Like, did they bring them with them in preparation for maybe the answer that Jesus might give to get him in trouble? And, and it stood out to me that Jesus stoops in their presence. You know, that is a vulnerable position. If you have, let's say, okay, if you're surrounded by, uh, you know, aggressive, antagonistic men that want to kill you, stooping down on the ground, like exposing your back, exposing your neck, is not something that you generally would do. You would take a defensive posture, maybe an aggressive stance. You'd be prepared to defend yourself. Jesus is unbothered here, and I think it's beautiful. I think it shows just he knew his time. He knew what was coming. He knew who his father was. And he had no fear, and he finds the third way. I'd say, entrust yourself to Jesus. Wait upon the Lord, and he will deliver you from impossible situations. They continued to ask him, and as he stood up, he said to to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. You know, when Jesus speaks into your situation, you know, that's, there's not much more else that you really have to do. You know? Like, if you get an answer from Jesus about a situation, you can, you can just rest then. He bends down, he writes on the ground. And there's a lot of speculation here. That's why I said this is been the subject of a lot of speculation. People think about what did Jesus write? You know, what did Jesus write? Uh, You know, some people say he was just drawing, he was doodling. Some people uh, think that he was buying time so he could come up with an answer. I don't, I don't really think that. I don't, I don't buy that. Uh, Some people think he was writing the names of her accusers. Some people think he was writing the names of sins. You know, uh, there's, there's all kinds of speculation it's interesting to me because when I see something like this, I think Jesus writing, I think a hand writing, like Jesus is God, God writing. I think where else have we seen this in Scripture? There's been a couple times that in Scripture that it has said that the hand of God has written something. I don't know if you might have heard of the Ten Commandments, you know. Uh, another time that that a hand from God wrote. We don't know that it was God's hand in the book of Daniel, right? You've been weighed, you've been measured, you've been found wanting. It's a, a judgment. That's a verdict, right? Belshazzar is, or what's his name? His life was taken that day. Um, and so I don't know, what, I wish, like, if I could have been there, man. I wish I could have been there. Now, uh, part of the writing process is, you know, we talked about being as condensed as you can is editing, and they, they left that part out, you know? Like, I think maybe uh, because the emphasis of, is, emphasis of the story is on the, the words that Jesus did speak and the action 
that he did take. But man, I wish I could know what that was. But whatever he wrote and the words that he spoke had an effect, right? But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now I think maybe the older ones left first. Maybe they, uh, maybe their, you know, their scholarship was a little bit deeper. Their study of scripture, maybe like uh, they picked up on what Jesus was saying or what he was doing faster. I think maybe that was the case. They, they maybe they had a little bit more shame. Uh, maybe they felt a little bit more conviction, and they perhaps left first. Uh, the air went out of the room you know the enthusiasm of the moment was gone the enemy was dismayed yeah that's so beautiful and I want to tell you what I love about this is they brought her to Jesus they themselves appointed Jesus as the judge did they not they wanted Jesus to judge in her situation it reminds me of Romans 8 right There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. They brought her under under the care of the Lord Jesus. And what did he say to her? Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Yeah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now there was, uh, as I was reading and coming across like the, the, this passage of Scripture and understanding you know, the arguments for including it or, or why maybe some, why they put brackets around it. And there were some scholars that said that it was actually, they believe it was omitted in some cases because it appears that Jesus is too light on the woman's sin. That he's taking it too easy on sexual sin here. And we see Jesus being, uh, of course, gracious we see him caring for her we see like i said romans 8 and we see jesus glorying in the power to forgive i believe this is a beautiful picture of the gospel jesus was the only one based on what he said let him who is without sin throw the first stone jesus is the only one qualified to throw the stone he's the only one qualified to carry out justice and he forgives he does not condemn he does tell her to go and sin no more he is acknowledging the sin he is not excusing it he's not explaining it away he's not invalidating it he's not saying it's a big deal and i want to say to you it's a huge deal sin is a huge deal of all varieties. Sin of perverted justice, of false witness, of, uh, of malice, of, of violence, of lying. The sin of sexual sin. It's a big deal. Do not take it lightly. But when you bring yourself to the feet of Jesus, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I want you to be free of condemnation, but I don't want you just to be free of condemnation 
just in your mind and, and kind of trick yourself that it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. You need to go to Jesus. He had to die on the cross for it. But I want you to go to Jesus and be free. Don't explain it away and try to find freedom in your own uh, excusing of your sin. Another thing that stands out in this story is the human tendency to want to harshly deal with the sin of other people while excusing the sin in our own lives. You know, there's a little bit of redeeming value in that they did leave. They did walk away. They were cut to the quick, as uh, it talks about in Acts and Peter's, uh, when Peter gave his sermon. There was something that happened, something in their conscience that wasn't so singed and burned and, and hardened that they didn't have any shame, that they didn't feel any consequence or conviction. You think about uh, David with Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan came to David. He had to tell a story, right? He told the story about the rich man with all the sheep and he took the one guy's, that only had one sheep and that story. And David burned with anger, wanted the man killed. And Nathan says to him, you are that man. We ought to feel a righteous anger in regards to our own sin. We ought to deal harshly, not with ourselves, but with our sin. And take ourselves to Jesus to be forgiven. That's the gospel. That's what this Christian thing, this uh, Christianity thing is about. You're bringing yourself to Jesus. You're acknowledging the weight and the seriousness of your sin. And you bring yourself to the feet of Jesus. You appoint Him as Lord and as judge over your life. And you trust His verdict over your life. You trust the word that He speaks. The sentence that he delivers over your life. And you leave without condemnation. You leave with freedom. You go and you sin no more and you walk with Jesus. I love this story. This is a beautiful story. And I want you to have hope today. If you're in a tough situation that you don't see a way out, there's a way. Jesus makes a way. He's a way maker. We sing that sometimes. Right? He creates a way. Think about... uh, the Red Sea, you know, like, no way, There's, they're trapped. And he makes a way. He makes a way for you to walk through whatever it is that's bearing down on you that you're facing. I love his tenderness in dealing with this woman. She is a sinner. She has sinned. And we can take lessons, of course, of, such a silly thing to even say. Of course, yes, we take lessons from Jesus on how we treat sinners and how we love people. We don't record their wrongs. We don't uh, keep a book where we write them down and pull them out when it's convenient for us to throw them in people's face. But we, we take them to Jesus. We do all that we can to bring them, to help lead them to repentance, lead them to the cross. We elevate Jesus and people will be drawn to Him. And we don't condemn them, but we help them walk in freedom. It's a good word. It's a beautiful passage. So I hope you have hope today. And I hope that you go to Jesus. You take yourself to Jesus. You can do that. You, know, like, you can take yourself to Jesus and you can tell Jesus all the bad things that you've done and he's going to treat you the same way. You know? Bring yourself to Jesus. Let him know your sins. <laughs> Confess your sins to Jesus.
and go and sin no more. We're going to have, uh, I, I'm kind of short, I feel like that's short today. It was 11 verses, but uh, um, I'm going to have the worship team come back up here. I don't know, they may not even be ready. They're always ready, Max. Oh, yeah, they're prepared. So I want to encourage you, we're going to have a communion, we have a song, we have communion. Um, and you know, that's kind of what communion is, is we're continually remembering what Jesus did, we're bringing ourselves to Jesus, we're remembering His body that was broken, His blood that was shed, so that He's able, that he's, He made a way where there was no way. That's the ultimate third way of Jesus there's, he doesn't, forget, he doesn't excuse our sin. He doesn't just pretend it's not there. He deals with it. Where His justice and His mercy